Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick, graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator, and I'm Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hey there, true believers. This is Jim Zub, the writer of Conan the Barbarian. You're listening to The Marvelous with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest on the other end of the tin can and string. Returning. Exactly. Returning. He's a two-timer. Sir, two-timer. In a good way. We want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them thar social medias. But first, Happy New Year. Go ahead. Well, this is the se- this is going to be airing after uh, that episode, Eddie. So Happy New of- Year, second time around. There we go, perfect. Good Shalimar, enough. Goonies are good enough. Anyway, <clears throat> first off, go on Facebook at facebook.com/slash The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. Follow us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. Why? And on uh, how dare you? <laughs> two thousand people can't be wrong. You can go on. It's that two thousand and first one you got to watch. Well, yeah. But anyway, you can find me also on TikTok for God knows why. Time. Mm-hmm. At TikTok, <laughs> go on TikTok. Got him. At, uh, go on TikTok at Peter Melnick, but better because well, the other Peter Melnick is taken. Said, he said, "But how dare you?" You can also find Eddie on a wide variety of streaming platforms. No, you can't. That is true. You can only find him on one. Platform, That's enough. And that is IG. <laughs> the IG. It's on Instagram at Eddie nine one nine three. We're like a terrible vaudeville act. You has know, not you changed. It. No, it's not. Oh, twenty twenty one. Vaudeville would not have us. I may have a letter somewhere. We got the suit and the hat. It's, it's just stamped. No. Anyway, go on a wide variety of streaming platforms where you can find this here fine program. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, and sunny and share. Oh. <laughs> anyway, ice cream machine, broken machine, McDonald's, whatever. You can also find us on other streaming platforms. I'm mixing it up in 2021 for the quote-unquote second recording time. <laughs> Give me a beat. Anyway, you can find you can find us on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud. Have an RSS feed, wrangle it. We'll be there. Yamo be there even. Mm. Oh God, I'm unbearable today. You can also find us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash The Marvelists, where you can be able to help support the show for as little as three dollars a month to as high as eight dollars a month, or I guess maybe name your own price and help support the show. I don't know. I don't know how it works. It's a game show now. Maybe, but. For $3 a month, you get our undying gratitude and a phantom newsletter that probably still won't show up because I did it once and everyone else was supposed to do it, but I took the blame. Once? Yeah, I did. That was the first one, Eddie. I I missed it. (laughs) And I told... Anyway. For $5 a month, you can join myself, Eddie, and John Sherburn on the fantastic voyage. Yes. He doesn't... No, he doesn't say it that way. He does not, but... On the fantastic Eddie, you've had caffeine today too, haven't you? Or it was it was hours ago. Well, anyway, you can find us on the Fantastic Voyage, all three of us, as we go through the 102 issues plus, plus. annuals and plus maybe other mini things we don't Specials. know, like tie-ins or whatever. But of the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby iconic run of the Fantastic Four, and as of this recording, myself, I'm actually way ahead of the curve. I'm on issue number 26, and it's pretty good, guys. But 
this month on the program, well, last month on the program in December, we were joined for episode number five, talking the debut of Dr. Doom with an honorable mentions, Shane Hagedorn. And also this month for January, last Friday, we're going to be joined with Marvel editor Tom Brevoort. Yes. And I got to tell you, in the notes for that, I wrote a lot of things like saying, hey, everybody, I wonder why this is this. Well, the walking encyclopedia of Marvel knowledge, the master of the Marvel arts, Tom Brevoort, helped that out. And I didn't even realize he would be able to. But then I'm like, oh, Tom, want to do the show? He's like, yeah, sure. And that was that. And he just batted those questions back, like, why do you think? And, well, it was because, you know, X, Y, and Z. Oh, whoa, okay, very good. we got a good resource here. And those were letters involved in one of the questions that we asked. Correct. But for as high as $8 a month, I guess, you can help support the show and pick a topic of your choosing. And if we think you don't suck, we will bring you on board as a special guest co-host, much like friend of the show, good old golly gee chum, Jeremy Bagley. Jacked up, Jeremy Bagley. Yes, happy belated birthday, Jeremy. And, yeah, so let's wake him up. Uh, Jim, good morning. Jim's up. (laughs) Hey, how's it going? Okay, good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you guys. Uh, Happy and better. I love the the vaudeville back and forth is is, uh, all good with me. I'm fine with it. I think this is the first vaudeville actual naming and or reference we've made, so uh, we're going backwards in time, I guess. Well, well, I'll wear the suit at least once. (laughs) See you coming in those stripes, and okay, fine. Maybe. Now, since the last time we talked to you, I believe that was around the time you were about, or you either were about to join or just landed onto Savage Sword of Conan. Not the actual sword, that would be painful. But joining the title. (laughs) And you are currently now the main writer of Conan the Barbarian. Congratulations. Thank you. Way to uh, go. It's an amazing honor. It's it's a book that's got such an incredible history and uh, definitely bucket list material for me. So... (laughs) Um, the publishing schedule in 2020, I don't know if you heard, but there were some things that happened. Yeah. It was a little chaotic. Uh, so we didn't have all the issues come out that we had anticipated. But now, now, finally, was, we're sprinting into 2021 with uh, big plans and, and awesome adventures. Was it a print error? Like, did somebody get the wrong letter published? No, no. <laughs> it was just, a, you know, this little pandemic thing that kind of threw our uh, publishing schedule a little bit in whack. Oh, I prefer so I had my first issue of Conan come out in... February, then I had an issue in March, and then my next issue was October. (laughs) Yeah. So we had a bit of a gap in there. That's one of the things about uh, the pandemic at first that really broke my heart was not being able to go to my local comic shop. And when all of this was going on, by the way, did you, uh, were you able to go to your comic shop? Like maybe, you know, do curbside pickup or order online? Yeah. So my local shop is The Beguiling, which is uh, this shop's got a great history here in Toronto. They also help organize the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, which is this amazing um, convention that's held in the the main kind of reference library here in Toronto. Didn't happen in 2020, but it's also an incredible show. Um, So that's my my store. And they've been doing, you know, curbside and ordering and and both mail out and pickup. And um, they've been able to, to weather the storm relatively well, all things considered. Now, right now, we are slowly approaching Conan the Barbarian number 25, which will be a humongous milestone edition. Now, why is that, Jim? Well, so 
Um, we're still a little ways off, but it will be coming out this year. By my current estimation, I think 25 will be coming out October. Yeah, so issue 19 is the one that I'm sort of gearing up for now, and we're building this big story arc that's going to culminate in, in Conan 300. So in the original run of Conan at Marvel, it ended with 275. Off the top of my head, I don't know what year that would have been. I'm going to say and 80s. Then when, no, 90s. 90s. Yeah, sometime okay. in the 90s. And then when Marvel got the license back and Jason Aaron took over, um, his first issue, legacy-wise, would be 276. So our 25th issue of the new run is the legacy 300th issue mm-hmm. of the classic all put together. So... Um, it's, uh, it's the first big kind of anniversary issue I've been able to, you know, sink my teeth into, and I have, uh, big plans and all sorts of exciting stuff building toward it. Now, one of the things about the Conan the Barbarian license coming back home to Marvel, there were probably a lot of rumblings going on internally, you know, between the writers like, hey, did you guys hear what's coming back? No, this is, are you serious? Conan's coming back? When you had first heard the early, you know, rumblings about it, what was your initial reaction to hearing that? Well, it was a really weird circumstance because <clears throat> I definitely heard earlier than most. Um, I was at C2E2, and I was talking to uh, Tom Brevoort. He was um, talking to Mark Wade and I about the Avengers Weekly book that we had done. So we did this weekly event called No Surrender, uh, along with Al Ewing and a slew of amazing artists, including you know Pepe Larraz and uh, Sean Isaac and uh, uh, Paco Medina, we just had this this just killer lineup of of amazing artists. Um, and so we were talking about a follow up that we wanted to do the next year. Uh, we didn't know exactly what shape it was going to take, and we were at the Chicago convention and out for dinner and just chatting in general. And Tom uh, let us know that that Conan was going to be returning to Marvel, and he and um, C.B. Sobolski had kind of talked about the idea of bringing Conan into the mix, that Conan could be some sort of a cool part of this Avengers story that we were going to put together. So my initial reaction was, holy crap, Conan's coming back to Marvel, and then, holy crap, they want to do a superhero thing with Conan, and my my Conan fanboy part of me was like, no, you can't do a superhero crossover. That will suck. And then, of course, that weird, selfish part of my brain goes, well, if you're going to do it, I can make sure I can protect it and do it right and try and make it as, as Conan-tastic as possible. And so um, it was this weird mix of like excitement and nerves and the whole 10 yards. I knew that, that Marvel was going to do uh, you know, a regular Conan monthly book, and I knew Jason Aaron was a big fan, so I was pretty certain he was going to be able to, um, to take hold of the monthly book, which he did. But Jason's known for doing these long runs on books. Like he was on Thor for years, and he's got these, you know, big long storylines that he builds out and architects his way through. And so I just assumed he was going to be the writer on Conan for years, and that there wouldn't be a possibility for me to kind of slip in between the cracks there or or wedge my way to it. Um, but then when I saw that they were also going to be publishing a Savage Sword series and it was going to have different creative teams kind of rotate through with stories, I was like, okay, that might be my, my kind of opening. That might be a spot for me to try and, uh, you know, put a, put a mark down and, and tell kind of a classic Conan story. And um, I had written Conan, I'd co-written Conan with Gail Simone on a miniseries called 
appropriately enough, Conan Red Sonja, that was co-published by uh, Dark Horse and Dynamite. But again, that was a co-written thing. So it's like both on No Road Home and that Dark Horse miniseries, I was co-writing Conan, Red Sonja, these Avengers characters. Um, selfishly, I really wanted to do a solo story. Like I wanted to just sort of have my name on that writing credit and the Savage Sword story that I put together that came out in um, 2019, trying to get all the dates in my head here worked out, um, was my chance to do that. So I pitched the story that would eventually be published called The Gambler. It was this three-part Savage Sword story. Pat Zerker was the uh, artist on it. And um, that was, I thought at the time, going to be my last chance to write Conan, honestly. Um, I did not anticipate that instead of, like, I kind of wrote it as this classic self-contained Conan story that would allow me to kind of drop the mic and go, this is what I think are the ingredients of a cool Conan story done in a way that I haven't quite seen before done. And I could sort of walk away feeling like, good, I put my just tiny little mark on a, you know, this character I love so much. Um, What I didn't anticipate was that it was going to be more of an audition and that the powers that be, that, that Jason was going to be moving on from the monthly series and they were actually looking for a new writer. And so the gambler ended up being uh, impressing Conan Properties and impressing Mark Basso and C.B. Sobolski, the editorial crew on, on Conan, and they would end up offering me the series instead, which um, was obviously not, not what I had uh, expected. And when it comes to the character of Conan, there is... I really have not visited much of the modern Conan stuff with, you know, one or two exceptions. And I'm reading your run, and in the middle of uh, Into the Crucible, something happens that completely caught me off guard. And it was the level of violence in one scene where I'm just, I audibly went, oh shit. <laughs> quite, fr- <laughs> quite frankly, pardon my language, but I saw that and I'm just like, wow, they did that. And what I'm referring to was when Conan cut that woman's fingers off. Yeah. And you yeah, we see got, it. You know, it's weird because we've got, you know, there are ratings on the books. And so you're, you're sometimes trying to find ways to show things without showing them. And that was one of those sequences where I was like, I think we can infer it. And then uh, Raj, the artist, he just drew it straight out, this character getting their fingers hacked off. And lo and behold, we, we cleared the, the bar on it as far as the rating goes, and away it went. Um, so I'm always sort of, when I'm writing the scripts, I'm like, okay, you know, this person's getting eviscerated or a sword's getting jammed, you know, through their back or whatever. And I kind of know that we're going to have to do some of it in silhouette or we're going to have to infer more uh, gore than necessarily seeing on panel. And that was one where I was like, well, all right, then. I mean, <laughs> you know, let's, uh, let's have at it. If we can get it on there, then let's do it. You know, because I feel like that it's important to have those visceral moments because those really feel like the Hyborian age to me and, and the kind of survival at all costs kind of stuff that makes a good Conan story feel uh, intense the way it should. I mean, you know, his title is The Barbarian, so I'd imagine, yeah. you know, having yeah. those kind of visuals... But one of the things about that also, as a writer, you know, you're throwing in different descriptions of things that you want the artist to articulate. And like, I've, re- you know, I've recently taken a uh, two courses at the Kubert School for the online uh, portion with Professor Amy Chu. And like, some of the things that we would talk about is like, trying to get those visuals through a description out and mm-hmm. communicating it to the artist. 
And what was the one moment with your Conan run and your work in general where you'll write something and you're blown away by what the artist delivered to you? Like they exceeded those expectations. Yeah, I mean, I've been really thankful that the vast majority of artists I've worked with have have delivered in spades on those kinds of things. And I, I because my background is in art, and I, I used to work as an artist in animation and in illustration, I have a pretty distinct understanding of how much work goes into some of these pages. So when you're asking someone to draw whatever, an army, or you're asking someone to draw a, a chaotic battle full of opponents, that is a that is a serious amount of work that you're putting someone through. And you need to know that those are the big moments that are worth it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you say, yeah, that army riding horses charging the hill, like that is, that is hell for an artist. That's what you're lining them up for. So is that the particular moment you want to deliver on? Is that where we're going to spend all our creative credit on this particular issue? And what's been really satisfying is, giving the artist kind of an out, like saying, we can show this in a simpler way, and they decide to turn towards the more difficult or more detailed path because they're pumped to do it, Mm -hmm. because they want to deliver on the potential of it, you know? So that's the kind of stuff. There's a part in Into the Crucible where we're in an arena, and I sort of said, you know, there's crowds of people up in the stands, and it's like Raj is going to draw 20-odd people in the stands, and I'm thinking, why am I doing this to the poor guy? You know, he could, there's other ways he could have done it, but that's, you know, what he decided to lean in on. Uh, Max Dunbar is another artist who I've done stuff with, and he's done these phenomenal, uh, in the Dungeons & Dragons series we did together, he literally drew armies crashing into each other. And I thought, you know, this is so much work. This is just a wild amount of, of uh, craziness I'm asking for. And this artist is just pouring themselves onto the page. And it's something you never want to take for granted. You know, you don't put those scenes in there lightly. Absolutely. And just going back to Jim, using the word savage, you know, to make, to come up with Savage Avengers, I think perfect. I think Conan probably is the first one to maybe have that title, uh, that descriptive word attached to him. And I go back to, of course, Savage Sword and that, Mm -hmm. you know, being in black and white in magazine form. Um, would you say that that run, Savage Sword of Conan, had more graphicness to it or was oh, able yeah. to? The, the magazine release format allowed them to get away with a lot more. They could do, um, even if not full nudity, I know they could do partial nudity. They did a lot more violence. The art was bigger as well, so they were able to do a lot more detailed kind of stuff. Those issues are phenomenal. I've been picking up the new omnibuses that marvel has been releasing and even though i have a bunch of that stuff already the reproduction quality on it is stunning and uh, the line work particularly the black and white stuff in the in savage sword is just it's so great having it in that format and being able to go back through those stories for inspiration i remember it being mostly uh, i guess at some point it did transition over to uh, to color um, I think they, I mean, the, the new series was in color. I, I think they did a few specials that were in color, but the vast majority of it was black and white. That was just sort of the traditional way. Some of the artists would just do hatching and line work, and some of them would do almost like this, um, it looked almost like etching, you know, kind of styles with it. And other artists would do gray tones or, or um, they would use the, the zip-a-tone kind of patterns or stuff like that. There was a bunch of artists who really cut loose on those issues and, 
and did some seminal work, particularly, you know, John Brasima, but other guys as well who were really, really knocking it out of the park on that series. And it's a constant inspiration where I'm going back. Particularly, I would love some of the storytelling techniques they would do where they would break out of the panel borders and do these cool montages of travel or, or weird, creepy kind of nightmares and supernatural visions. That's the stuff that I, I keep kind of a reference pool of and I'm occasionally sending to the artist, like, let's really break out and do some kind of classic Conan storytelling here. I think it'll be, you know, what the what the sequence needs. I think it's a great tool to do something like that and just to keep an eye on it, not to uh, over overuse it perhaps, right? Yeah, you've got to, you know, like all these tools in the toolkit, right? Like there's certain things that um, Conan the Barbarian generally doesn't have a lot of sound effects because it's not... And, and, and you know, when Roy Thomas was writing the series originally... Um, I don't know how intentional it was, but this idea that just having swords clanging into each other and saying clang, clang, or, you know, stab or whatever, like these sound effects are not as visceral as those kind of caption boxes where he's describing this stuff with that purple prose, like really poetic kind of feelings or visceral information, things we're smelling or things that, you know, uh, uh, sights and, and, and inner thoughts of the characters, but not even done in a classic way where the captions are just like thought balloons, but just like describing impressions of emotions that characters are having or memories that they may be tripping across or factual kind of information about the world and lore of the Hyborian Age so that you're getting this visceral greater sense of what's happening and you're slowing down on each of those panels to really take in the action. And so even just a regular sword fight suddenly takes on this much more epic feel when you're reading all this other information or you're getting this other sensory information described to you. Writing Conan is not like writing a superhero book. And it's not even like writing other sword and sorcery titles that I've done. Like I'm simultaneously writing issues of Conan and Dungeons and Dragons. And the Dungeons and Dragons issues are very much kind of colorful high fantasy with a lot of quips between characters and that is not that is not conan you know so i kind of enjoy being able to cut loose in different ways on different titles and and use different you know tools in my toolbox to hopefully to to strong effect is there a time frame that you have yourself settled into jim that you know now that things are more rolling along kind of thing that uh, with doing with doing Conan, with getting a book out, what kind of uh, parameters are you setting for yourself, whether it's for the week, you know, each day, how many hours each day working on it? Uh, can you take right. us through that a little? So we're building out the series in some pretty amazing ways. And the good thing is I've got a good relationship with the Conan Properties people as well. So <clears throat> I'm sort of doing a little bit of world building in, in a particular region of the Highborn Age that hasn't been focused on very much. So we're doing some cool stuff there. Um, Corey Smith, who's the new artist who comes on board with issue 19, he's doing phenomenal, phenomenal work. I really can't believe how incredible it looks. I'm really pumped for people to see it uh, because it does feel simultaneously kind of classic Conan, but there is a bit of a modern storytelling you know, slant to it. But the actual solidness of the storytelling and the figure work is really, really good. And so we've got a great working relationship where I'm sending him reference material all the time. And we're talking about everything from architecture to armor to weapons and clothing and how can we make this look cool and memorable and feel like it fits in this particular region of, of Conan's world, you know. Um, so I'm sort of putting in just depends on the day, of course. It's weird because working on a monthly book is so much more than just writing a script. Like mm -hmm. the physical act of writing a script might take me, whatever, two to three days. 
but the the pitching of the story ideas or the research and the gathering materials and coming up with the ideas and kind of putting it all in a in, you know those ducks in a row that's that takes a lot longer and then you're for every issue of course you're going through everything from you know pencil roughs being sent in to finish line work to colors to lettering proofs and covers and all that stuff and and i really love being a part of that process i don't just want to have stuff kind of show up surprised like I love being on the ground floor and, and being able to comment and give feedback and be a visceral part of the production process. And so I, I kind of put myself as much into it as, as editorial will, will let me. Is there something where an idea comes to mind? It could be you, maybe somebody else working on it. And well, how about this happens? Well, you don't know how it gets to be that, you know, you're, you're three, three, four parts ahead. Now you got to figure out how he's going to get to that. Is that a typical scenario or? Sure. So there's sort of different writing methodologies just in general for fiction. And some people are what they call planners and other people are what they call pantsers. You know, they're writing by the seat of their pants and they're hoping that the story will all work its way through and inspiration strikes all the time. I'm more of a planner. I definitely try and build out the story in terms of a structure ahead of time so I know exactly where it's going. But I try and allow myself some flexibility because in the course of making the story, you will always have new ideas. You'll always have visceral little moments. You go, oh, wouldn't it be great if that will enhance what we've already got here? So you don't want to close off all those avenues of inspiration because then you're not going to have those cool, those cool inspired moments. And so, you know, every so often I'll get a, an idea and I go, okay, we have to kind of retrofit some plot line stuff or this secondary character who I thought would just be in a couple scenes now seems much more interesting the page art comes in and I go, wow, the characters' visuals are so much more compelling. What if we had them come back or what if we did more with them? Because I just think that, you know, Corey's having a good time drawing them and I'm having a good time just seeing it there on the page. <clears throat> Let's make more of that. Let's make some more hay here. And, and it helps make the world feel a little bit more organic and interconnected, you know? Um, so it's, I, I don't really have a definitive answer for you. It's like, mm-hmm that's part of the joy of the collaborative process is it's not just going to be the way I think it is. It's that, you know, Corey gets to put himself into the process and say what he thinks is cool or emphasize certain elements of it. And we've had a couple phone calls and I've just asked him straight out, what kind of things do you love to draw? And he was sort of joking with me because he's done so much kind of modern superhero work. He's never been kind of a fantasy guy. You wouldn't know it looking at the pages because they're so stunning. And he said, you know, he's just thrilled he doesn't have to draw high rise buildings and all the windows because he just finds that stuff, you know, tepid and boring. And he's like, here, it's all like cool jungles and crazy, you know, ruins and, and funky monsters. So he's having an absolute blast. Are we yet looking at the same Conan character with all the traits and personalities from somebody who might have read all those 275 issues? And then, well, I had two things going on in my head, and one was going from that to the, you know, 276. And then the stuff in between that was out in the other realms or whatever. Uh, we right, look right. at the same Dark Horse character. publisher, whoever, yeah. Right. Are we talking about the same, uh, you know, any differences? I mean, in- yes. You know, it's, it's, I don't want to, I definitely hew to the literary tradition of the character and, and the Roy Thomas kind of approach. So if you like those aspects of Conan, I think you'll feel right at home. You know, any of these long-running characters, and when you get right down to it, Conan really is a legacy character. He's even got a greater legacy than, than comics. You know, he's one of the first, <clears throat> he's the original sword and sandal, you know, hero. He is a, a, a literary classic. Um, 
you know, Spider-Man or Batman or any long-running kind of character goes through different periods or writers have their own kind of stamp that they put on them. So I don't want to say, like, yes, this is 100% identical. Robert E. Howard himself would write it this way. Like, that's mm-hmm. – my ego is not that big. Um, but on the other hand, I think there are core traits that have to be there in order for it to feel like Conan. You know, that he's he's this self-made – you know, sellsword who who is a survivalist. Like he will do, you know, what it takes to get through the most difficult of circumstances. And he is the man who will become a king by his own hand. And that requires a certain amount of guile and, you know, intensity and willpower. And you always see that in the character, pretty much no matter who is writing him. Now, the movie, you know, particularly the original Arnold film, casts a long shadow over the character in good and bad ways. Visibility-wise, it's it's the standard bearer for a lot of people. But that character, you know, John Milius's story and, and film is not the Conan of the books and even the comics. He's a different kind of a character. He takes bits and pieces from other stories. Some of Conan's origin in that movie is from Cole the Conqueror, and some of it's just stuff that John Milius threw in there because he thought it was cool. Um, and so you you... You want enough recognizable stuff that people go, yeah, that's Conan the Barbarian the way I think he should be. And that's like, yeah, he's a badass and he looks a certain way and he kicks butt and he's a survivor. But, you know, I'd say my Conan's more, a little more, uh, um, I don't know how I'd put it, like like he's a little more perceptive. He's a little more uh, learned, but not book learned. Like Conan is not a guy who's going to necessarily go to a library and look up a bunch of stuff, but he's he's well learned about the way of the world and he knows people and he can recognize traits in them and react very quickly, you know, based on the circumstances. That's, that's that survivor trait that I think you'll always recognize in the character in almost every single story that's told of him. Now, you know, we also talk about the continuity of being involved in these massive universes. You know, you've done stuff mm-hmm. with Conan the Barbarian. You've done stuff with the main Marvel universe, the 616. There's another universe that you've been involved with, a galaxy of long, long time... Star Wars, that's what I was far, trying to Far, far away, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah, swinging and missing. <laughs> uh, say it again? Uh, yeah, a galaxy far, far away, absolutely, and, and quite recent as well. Um, there's this amazing anthology that came out a few years ago called Star Wars from a Certain Point of View, and they, they kind of broke it up into a series of short stories. There were 40 different authors celebrating the 40th anniversary of A New Hope, and they wrote about sequences um, from characters that are not our main characters. So it's not a story from Luke's point of view or Han's point of view or Leia. It's all these other characters. It's random stormtroopers and commanders and and sand people and the guy behind the bar, you know, at the cantina and stuff like that. And it was a big hit. It sold really well and people loved getting, feeling like they understood more about these characters. And so it's the 40th anniversary of Empire Strikes Back. And so they've done another one from a certain point of view, Empire Strikes Back, and I was asked to contribute a story to that. And um, much to my shock, uh, one of the characters that was still available when I came on board was Yoda. And so I got to write a story from Yoda's point of view as Luke Skywalker is arriving on Dagobah. And it is um, kind of, it was a surreal experience to uh, to put together my proposal for it and kind of go through the process working with the Lucasfilm crew and our editor at Del Rey and, and um, putting together what is ostensibly a very short story, 
but tried to pack in as much kind of meaning as possible into those pages. And one of the things about that, you know, I a few years ago had interviewed Mark Wade, and that was around the time Marvel got the rights to the Star Wars license, and he worked on the Princess Leia miniseries. And I remarked mm-hmm. to him, you know, when you really think about it, what you're doing in these stories affects the characters in the films that you see. You know, you're, what you're doing is adding to the continuity. It's canon. It is involved. And right. in a lot of ways, while, you know, you're telling a story from that specific point of view, you're giving these characters a voice. You're giving them their thoughts, such as the one moment in your story where you mentioned that Yoda will, he would carry around that little uh, cane and he would use right. it to trick people into thinking he was, you know, old and feeble. But now at this point, 900 years old, he's going around with it. He actually does need it. But you're giving him these thoughts and whatnot. And when you think about it, those thoughts lead to other actions that lead to other actions that lead to other actions. Technically, you're responsible for the Death Star blowing up, uh, Jim. You do realize that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you, if you want to get sort of, sort of hyper-detail-oriented, it's kind of weird, right? Like... Anytime you're contributing to those broader universes, the Marvel Universe or, or anything, you know, I've written some stuff for the Rick and Morty comics or Samurai Jack or, or things like that, you are contributing to this broader uh, tapestry of all these things. And you're trying as hard as possible to both be respectful of what is there and exemplify what exists. But also, if you're literally just saying the exact same thing that everyone's already said, why does this exist? Why is this even here? Why is this story being told? So you're also trying as hard as possible to find new facets to emphasize or strengths to, to play up on or things to you know, entertain and engage the readers and give them a greater appreciation for what exists. And that is um, a challenge and it's an honor and it's something that I, I definitely don't want to take for granted, you know, that I'm even asked to come aboard in the first place and then have the whatever hubris to say, hey, what if what if Yoda's thinking this or what if these kinds of past actions could be framed in this way? Um, And if you do it well, hopefully it all feels like it enhances the whole, you know. And there's oh so many characters in the Star Wars mythos. And if Yoda was not on the table, who was your other pick that you would have gone with? Well, so most of the stories that are in in the first book are hyper obscure, like it's literally that that one technician walking in the background for a few frames. And there's something cute and wonderful about taking an absolutely, not even tertiary, like as far down the alphabet you can go in terms of the, you know, their importance to the storytelling and making them interesting and their feelings or their opinion on what they're seeing play out in the film. Um, And so I was going to take that approach. My original kind of concept was there's, on Dagobah, there's a creature called a, um, uh-oh, I just forgot the name of it. Oh, no. Is it like it's the bat a, thing? No, it's this. It's the thing that swallows R2 in the water and then spits him out. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's like a dragon snake or something like that, I think. Anyways, it eats uh, R2. So I was going to have this weird story about it kind of going through its daily routine, like it's digging through the dirt for food and it's thinking about how it wants to mate. And it was just going to be the most weird kind of pedantic sort of of animal thought processes and all of its daily ritual that then gets broken up by the arrival of the X-Wing as it stirs up the water and everything else. And then the mud and then, you know, its eggs and all this stuff. And that's why it gets all mad and it ends up attacking and, and eating up uh, R2, can't swallow him because he's a droid, and then spits him out. 
And so that was my original idea was I was going to write this very weird kind of inner monologue of an, of a monster. And it's like, that will be my tiny little footprint on the Marvel universe, <laughs> not sorry, on the star Wars universe, you know? Um, and lo and behold, uh, we were talking, I was talking with the editor and he said, you know, there's some characters that haven't been picked yet. And, and he was surmising that one of the reasons why was possibly because people were intimidated to do Yoda. He said, do you have any interest in Yoda? And I was like, well, of course I do. But like, do you want me to, to pitch you a Yoda idea? And he said, yes. And so I turned around and, and, and wrote this Yoda concept and, um, and that was the one that ended up sticking, and we went forward with it. So it was a weird thing that was well, I thrust on me in a good way, you know what I mean? Just got me I – I don't know that I would have, have picked it out because I probably, like everyone else, would have been too afraid to. But then when someone said, man, I can't believe someone's leaving this amazing character on the table, I was like, well, that's ridiculous. And- i gotta got to pick up the torch here. <laughs> And in the Star Wars universe, there's so many random, obscure characters. I, I haven't flipped all the way through the book yet, but I'm curious if the one character that was a background character in Empire was given a story. And I'm referring to the guy who, if I remember correctly, he's on Hoth. And he's running around carrying these secret plans. Oh, man. I don't remember off the top of my head. So it's weird because I've read through the book, but my mind is blanking on whether or not that character... I know there are characters that... <clears throat> There's at least one character on the Hoth base that is sort of perceiving of Han Solo and Leia's kind of interplays and the way they're angry at each other, hitting on each other, and and you know, but I don't know that if that's necessarily the character you're talking about. Well, the character I'm talking about is one where, if you see him, it looks like he is carrying a science fiction device, but oh, okay. in actuality, he's carrying, and I swear to God, I'm not making this up, an ice cream machine. Amazing. I mean, that's what's so great about, a lo- you know, the, the original lightsabers, I think, are some sort of um, photographic equipment, like yeah. those, the, the handles of the things. So, you know, that, but it gives them this very grounded quality. They feel like the kind of industrial design that we all recognize, but just recontextualized, you know what I mean? Which I think is so cool. And again, the Star Wars universe is so massive. There are all these characters. Like I said, there's Ice Cream Machine, you know, man. Mm-hmm. Then there's like... He's recently been involved in the uh, Aftermath novels. Mr. Bones, who's a uh, battle droid who's got, like, you know, he's got actual human bones as a part of his anatomy, like, you know, to stab somebody. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's... Well, this, you know, I remember some of the characters' names are not used in the film, but I remember them from the... Um from the action figures, because they all had names, right? So then you're like, oh, that's how you learn who they all are, is because you collected the action figures when you were a kid or whatever, you know? And it, it always bums me out, though, when, like, some of those action figure names have to be changed to, like, you know, Ubaduba or something, when he was actually, like, you know, Hammerhead or Sna- uh, Snaggletooth. Right, right. I love those names. That's like, it's right. simple, but it works. <laughs> that's right. It's not like, you know, Scrabble Letter, this uh, Marvel character, or Scrabble Letter, the Star Wars character. But... Yeah, coming out. It's funny people talk about I, you know, how tough it can be to name Star Wars characters because it feels like everything's been taken or it sounds too much like something else. Uh, but it's like fantasy names as well. You try and jam together different sounds until it gives a particular impression or it feels a bit like the personality of that character in some weird way. My favorite Star Wars character name, where it's so on the nose, comes from the uh, prequels, Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. If you remember the guy who's talking to Obi-Wan about the uh, death sticks, I'm going to sell you death sticks. No, you're not. You're not going to sell me death sticks. I'm not going <laughs> to sell you death sticks. That character's name is Sleaze Bagano. 
<laughs> Very on the point, George. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just gotta you gotta call it like you know. Really, with a name like Sleaze Bag, you know, growing up, what else would you expect him to do? You know, occupation wise, he's just gonna fall into a role there, I guess. It's. <laughs> Oh, maybe you know, maybe he's got you know a nice four hundred one k. He's running around, you know, with right? his wife and kids, just doing his thing. But no, there's um, there's a character in the these uh, fantasy novels called the Dragonlance novels, and there's a knight, and he's very stern, and his name is Sturm, and you're like, that's that's you know, that's how you get it, nice that's... and simple. Keep it keep it simple. Just change one letter there, and you got yourself a. You got yourself a character. See, all, when I hear the name Sturm, all I'm thinking of is the guy with the really big chin from the movie Heavy Metal. So, <laughs> <laughs> But now, going back over to Conan the Barbarian, as we approach this legacy landmark issue of the character, I don't really want to ask what we have in store, but kind of what we have in store. I would kind of like right, to know, right. but, you know, keep it as uh, low-key. So yeah, I'm trying to do some classic storytelling stuff where, because I've got a longer run here going, we've been able to seed some cool little ingredients in the first few issues of my run that are going to continue to to grow. So, you know, your classic kind of monthly Marvel storytelling is your A plot, your B plot, your C plot. And as the A plot gets solved, the B plot suddenly comes to the foreground and the C plot moves into the B position and, you know, add a new C plot. And so I'm trying to do similar types of things where I'm seeding little bits of, of cool characters get mentioned in the broader mythology and then we're going to have them come back around or play a more important or different role than you might expect. Or, you know, the legend of something gets heard about in an early issue and whispers and then will become something very prominent that Conan is going to be in direct kind of contact with. And so in that way, the world feels interconnected and larger, and we get to kind of build up the hype over a longer period, um, which I'm pretty excited about. And, and um, Conan is, and this has all been revealed in the solicits already, he's going to be in Katai, which is kind of the eastern portion of the Hyborian Age map. And a lot of that stuff has not been built out very much, so we're going to get to show off more of those kinds of places and the in the possibility of conflict in those areas, whether it's between people or creatures or spirits and demons and all kinds of cool stuff that um, Conan is both in over his head and in some ways uniquely suited to dealing with. And um, I'm really, really pumped for how a lot of it plays out and kind of the interplays of characters you think are going to be, you know, villains, then kind of revealing more complex loyalties or people that Conan, you know, has reasons to trust early on are going to realize they're much more complex and corrupted. So stuff like that, it's, um, it's a fun world to play in, and it plays to a lot of my strengths in terms of the sword and sorcery stuff and big visceral, you know, kind of combat. And, and trying to keep things, you know, trying to surprise readers. With any of these long-running characters, it can be so difficult to come up with new ways to tell stories while still using ingredients that feel familiar, you know? Um, I think that's one of those things that I'm constantly impressed by. If I see a, re a writer who can take a character I know and I've read for decades, and you're still able to pull out new facets, you're still able to put them in situations where I can't immediately guess the outcome, that's, um, you know, that's the challenge. And you want to try and push yourself every time to make something cooler and more interesting than, um, than, than the readers expect, you know? Well, one thing, Jim, on a side note to that, maybe think of is you're introducing, if you're about to introduce a new geographic location that readers are not familiar with, where at some point does it become necessary to do something 
like a, a draw a picture, a map of the land kind of thing. Right. So there are like Conan has technically been to Katai in some of the older stories, but that's so brief. And in many cases, it's just playing on a really, really simple kind of aspect of it. Oh, okay, the buildings look a bit different. Oh, okay, they've got some of this kind of armor. And I'm trying to dig a little bit deeper and go, okay, well, but why? How does this stuff all fit together? Or culturally, how do these things, you know, play out? Or what are kind of the, the hierarchy in terms of politics and royalty and those sorts of things? And Conan, being an outsider, is able to bring a different perspective into it because he's not part of that system, right? So it's like some of it is geographic and some of it is architectural and some of it is, is fashion or weaponry and all kinds of cool stuff that we get to kind of play and build around and, and hopefully make it feel like a cohesive whole, but also surprise people with, with some of the permutations of it, you know? And on another level, it wouldn't be like, uh, well, we need to fill a couple more pages, let's draw a map. Right. No. Yeah, yeah. Like I love, I love all kinds of fantasy cartography. I love whether it's um, overland kind of maps or, or you know, in your classic Dungeons and Dragons sense, like your your places, like actual dungeon labyrinths and stuff like that. But it's like something where you go, okay, I don't just want to put it in there to put it in there. It's like, is that appropriate or is that something, you know, funky we could do? One of the things I'm talking to my editor about now is how do we make that issue 300 as special as possible? And one of the things I loved about the old anniversary issues was the ability to do cool schematics and cutaways, you know, the, a Fantastic Four annual where they would show you a map of the Baxter building and they would cut away and you'd see the elevator and all the labs and all the cool stuff. Like to me, that kind of handbook of the Marvel universe feel is so cool and just makes it feel so much more visceral. So it would be amazing if we could do more of that kind of stuff as well. Well, I would have to, yeah, have a purpose to, to put it in there. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and because the other thing I think of when I think of maps and stuff in stories is uh, the dark tower with Stephen King which helps mm -hmm. to give you a better sense, the reader, uh, a general understanding of what, you know, the man in black and the gunslinger are all going through and, and that kind of thing. Um, do you have a preliminary idea of what the number of pages this will wind up being, this key issue when we get to 300? Yeah, I can't, I can't say that's all still being finalized on yeah. our end. So I know what I need in terms of raw story pages. But then it's like other supplementary material or if we want to do backup stories or things like that. I would love to have one of those, you know, brick-like issues that feel like they're just – that they've got a spine, even though it's just a single issue. That's the kind of stuff that feels like an anniversary issue to me. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I'm not the one making that decision. So. Forget the staple. I want the square Damn it, I was going to make that joke. <laughs> it's yeah, going to be $9.99. Right. Yeah, boom. Yeah. There we are. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not boom. It's marble. I'm uh, Okay, fine. Or IDW, maybe. Okay, my, my jokes are a swing and a miss today. Conantastic. <laughs> I learned a new word today. I love that. Conantastic. I, I do appreciate hearing Conantastic. That got a big smile out of me. Nice. But what I am curious about with the future of these characters, mm -hmm. is Conan ever going to have a gun? Oh, no. <laughs> Just so, in the what-if so issue. In, this, the, you in know. the main, so in, in Savage Avengers, which Jerry Duggan's doing a really fun job with, um, that's where Conan's running around the mainline Marvel universe, right? So yeah. he's, he's crossing over, he's going to Wakanda, and he's going through the Savage Land, and he's running around New York and all that stuff. That is the place where you can experiment and you can do those weird and wild things where you're like, you know, now Conan is 
in the middle of a car chase and, and all this kind of crazy crap. And I think that's awesome. Like, I think that is a fun thing to do with the character and you're constantly able to push them in different areas. Um, but the main line Conan the Barbarian book needs to be kind of pure. It needs to be in the Hyborian age. It needs to be set in the kind of stuff that Robert E. Howard was doing. And the permutations that you're adding are the threats that are appropriate to that world. So it's like he's fighting some monster or demon or wizard or curse or you know strange items and far off places and things like that those are the kinds of ingredients that we've got at our disposal i think it if you if you tried to inject uh, a crossover with a superhero in that book the readership would understandably reject it because that's the place where they go expecting the literary kind of tradition of the character and that's what they should get you know what i mean and it's one thing to say oh we're going to surprise you and it's another thing to say we're throwing out these key aspects of the character for a quick, you know, gimmick. And it's like, I don't think Savage Avengers is a gimmick because it, the whole book is built around that concept of here's Conan in the Marvel Universe doing funky stuff. And it's inoculated in its own series and you can read it and you can enjoy it. But I wouldn't want those ingredients to spill into the mix for the main Conan the Barbarian series. And no one else at Marvel is going to do that either. That's not the plan, you know? And recently, Marvel ended up coming out with a gigantic book. I believe it was, was it a giant size Conan, king size Conan, king size Conan. There we go. And one of the things about that that I really enjoyed was the fact of all of these different creative teams that we've never seen involved with the character before. Yeah. And you got to admit, looking at that on the outside, you're just like, oh, look at these potential people I could work with on a future thing. Like, hmm. I would love to see you do a you know crossover or like a, a collaboration with Kevin Eastman on a oh, Conan man. story. It's so it's I mean it's an honor to be working on this character at the same time as this huge anniversary and to see all these other creators that are excited and pumped and pouring themselves into it. I mean that alone just tells you how much people love Conan and they love the character and they they want to be able to, you know to be able to do this kind of stuff as well. And, you know, King Size Conan was both intimidating and amazing because I'm reading it. And like me on The Gambler, they get to do their one story, drop the mic and walk away, you know, so they can pour themselves into this one-off and just make it super badass. And um, and I think to myself, you know, on some way I'm, I'm jealous because I'm, oh, that is the, the dream where you can just come in on a character, do something cool, and then, and then step away. The monthly issues are harder, but also there's a real satisfaction there to building a chunk of material that's ongoing, you know, and that's the thrill <clears throat> and the, the fear of doing a, a monthly book like this. But yeah, King Size Conan is awesome. I think the issue turned out phenomenal. Mark Bresseau, my editor, just picked a, you know, murderer's row of, of talent on that issue and just made it the anniversary kind of special that it deserved to be, absolutely. And just seeing, like, again, you know, even Claremont making, you know, an appearance out of yep. there. Just, my God, just phenomenal and stuff. And a great story, that. too, like all of them. There's really no, there's no weak spot in that King's, you know, King Size Conan issue. I feel like every story delivered well. The art's really consistent throughout the whole thing in terms of each one made a cool mark and did their thing well. And that's what you want. You know, that's the excitement of bringing on unexpected kind of uh, artists and writers into the mix. <clears throat> is having them put a bit of themselves into it, but still being able to clearly see the character that you know and love. And it also shows the impact and importance of this character 
not just, you know, for comic book fans, but comic book industry professionals. And mm-hmm. what, got, you know, I got a real kick out of is we really have not seen Kevin Eastman, for example, do many things with Marvel, but he's done no, a lot of stuff no, with Marvel very, with very Conan. Little. And, it, you know, again, like we've seen him do so much stuff with Conan. Like I know he did the uh, variant cover for the first issue of Conan mm-hmm. and he came back for that, you know, again, this king size Conan, just absolutely crazy to see. This is like, there are so many people that would love to see him, like, you know, do like a cover for the Avengers or do like a mini story. Nah, Conan. And yeah, it, yeah. it and shines. Yeah, it really tells you what kind of, like you said, the impact and the, the, the iconic nature of, of Conan as a character. And I think that you're going to see, you know, there's a Netflix show that's been lined up now that I think people are really pumped about. And the character's got a, in a good position right now. People are pumped for fantasy in a way I have not seen almost ever. Dungeons and Dragons is bigger than ever. Everything from, you know, Game of Thrones to Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter. Like, people are up for magic and sorcery and cool stuff. And the legacy that Conan has is gargantuan. And so it's, it's amazing to be able to be even a tiny part of that and to add in some of my own kind of stuff to the mix. And we are very fortunate to be able to have you here to speak with us about this, and we are looking forward to seeing what you do with Conan the Barbarian number 25 coming later this year, Jim. Yeah, number yeah, the, our new arc, 19, I think comes out in early March, so keep an eye out for that. If you haven't read my other issues, issue 13 to 18 also encompass uh, an arc. Um, Into the Crucible is the first four issues, and it is a big sword and sorcery romp with a labyrinth, betrayal, all kinds of cool stuff, and and well worth your time. And we need to write. We need to do a strongly worded letter campaign to our local congressman to help bring Conan the Barbarian, both the classic and the Dark Horse, and the current runs over to Marvel Unlimited because that would make the nine ninety nine a month well worth it even more so. Oh man, that would be sweet. All right, Jim. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And before we go, how can people get a hold of you on them, their social medias? So the the hub for everything that I'm doing is at my website, jimzub.com. So just J-I-M-Z-U-B.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, all those different things. But my website's got links to all that stuff. It's got previews of what I have coming up, interviews and all kinds of good things. I'm sure this one will be linked there as well. And if you uh, go to the right-hand side, there's a little column there called Tutorials, and you can learn how comics are written, how pitches are written to publishers, a lot of Q&A about working in the industry and things that I wish I had known when I was getting my start. So if you're either a uh, would-be creator or you're just interested in kind of peeking behind the curtain and seeing how comics are built, I think you'll find a lot of good stuff there. I like what he said there, Peter. He said hub, you know, rhymes with zub. I also like That's before... Right. And then when you said, too, about, you know, going down the alphabet as far as you can, I'm like, Z, for Zub, of course. That's right. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. I get that. Well, now you, know, you do. Also, you are on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash Jim Zub, correct? Yeah, my Patreon is basically like an archive of uh, my writing material. I have over 250 scripts on there, kind of uh, a cross-section of my career for almost every major publisher in North America. So if you enjoy, uh, you know, the comic creation process and you want to see how things are done, 
you can grab one of my issues, digital or physical, and then snag the script at my Patreon for the price of like a fancy coffee every month. You can dig through that archive and then look side by side and see how the script was made, how the outline was put together, and kind of the editorial process we went through on it. Very cool. I will be signing up. All right. Oh, thank you. As an aspiring comic uh, writer myself, I love being able to discover all of the little intricacies of what makes a comic a comic, and being able to see that, I'm in for a treat. Yeah, I think it just demystifies the process and and shows people that um, it's in some ways easier and in some ways more intricate than they might have realized. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim Zub. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Excelsior!